Good morning, men. It's great to see you this morning. A few weeks ago, we were able to come out. It's beginning to get a little bit light. Now it's dark again, but I do know it's going to get lighter the further on we get through this season. The tough part about daylight savings time, the farmers tell me, is that it uh, burns up the crops. Just too much sunlight burns up the crops, but uh, most of us can handle it okay. Great to be with you today. Last week, Todd did an excellent job of teaching 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. He introduced the theme of this chapter that we know is we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart as we live for and serve Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to his friends back in the church at Corinth. He had spent a lot of time there helping start that church and establish it and get it on a good fitting footing. And after he left, a lot of so-called super apostles and false teachers came in and started leading the church down the wrong path. And in the process, they unfairly criticized and castigated Paul's leadership. They attacked him and criticized him for all kinds of things that they themselves were doing. We see the same tactic in our political world today. Politicians attack other politicians for what they are doing. They themselves are doing. They accuse Paul of using disgraceful and underhanded methods, which is what they were doing. They accuse Paul of being cunning and tampering with God's word, which was what they were doing. And they criticize Paul for being manipulative and controlling, which was exactly what they were doing. And they made fun of Paul because he was not a great orator. He was not an eloquent speaker. But Paul himself admitted that. He did not come with a lot of a great oratory or wisdom of himself to share. He was so quick to indicate that he had weaknesses, that he had flaws too in his ability to speak and lead, but that God likes to choose to use weak people to carry out the gospel. Because when weak people are involved in carrying out the gospel, people see the activity and the power of God. God is glorified, not that talented, eloquent speaker. And Paul is appealing in 2 Corinthians to his friends to stop focusing on external things like eloquence and all these other fine little garbs and things that don't really matter. Focus on the gospel, living a life in adherence to the gospel and sharing the gospel with the lost world. And Todd also explained last week that we should not lose heart as we proclaim the gospel to other people. If people are not responding to the gospel, it's because there's spiritual blindness. They have spiritual blindness that the God of this world, Satan... The so-called God of this world is blinding people's eyes spiritually, and they cannot see and respond to the truth sometimes. So what is the answer to spiritual blindness in this world? And Todd so clearly pointed out that it is the recreative work of God that renews people's eyes and hearts and minds to receive and understand the gospel. God's recreative work is what changes us and helps us to understand the truth of the gospel and to respond God has opened our hearts and our minds and given us faith that we might believe and that we might be saved. And He can do that for other people too. He can shine His light in their hearts and give them the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But today as we move into verse 7 and chapter 4, Paul begins the discussion on suffering and death and judgment. Why does he take this turn? It may be because throughout Paul's life, especially in recent months, he had stared death in the face many times, and he couldn't help but write about it. Perhaps these so-called super apostles 
who were criticizing Paul's teaching, had nothing to say to the Corinthians about how to deal with persecution and suffering and death. And Paul wanted to address that and address it clearly for his friends back in Corinth. Paul was not afraid to write about his weaknesses because as he described his weaknesses, the glory of God and the power of God could be seen in human weakness. And Paul illustrated how in the covenant of grace, God meets us at our deepest level of suffering and pain through his saving work. His saving work, his divine power, not only delivers us in this life, but it also delivers us in the life to come. So as we jump into these verses in 7 through 18, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to speak to our hearts today. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word. You've not left, left us without instruction and guidance. And we pray today that your Holy Spirit will speak to us in spite of the things that I may say, and that your word might be living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce and discern in our hearts what is truth and what is not truth. And may your spirit direct us and teach us. May we be drawn closer to you. And may our eyes turn toward you in every circumstance of life and find the power we need to live and to be victorious in your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our very first truth we see in this passage is that God's power in us says more about Him than it does about us. When we see God's power at work, it says more about Him than it does about us. Verse 7 talks about these famous jars of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This treasure refers, I believe, refers back to verse 6 that we studied last week, the divine light of the gospel. That is the treasure that we have in these human bodies, the divine light of the gospel, what has saved us and brought us life in Jesus Christ. 
However, other Bible scholars like Charles Hodge believes this treasure is a ministry of the gospel that has called Paul to share the gospel and start churches throughout the known world. Regardless of whether this treasure is a divine light and knowledge of Christ or whether it's that call to go and to share the gospel, it truly is a treasure full of power and life and glory that frees people from condemnation and prevents them from wandering off into darkness and transforming them into the image of Christ. And this image of jars of clay, meaning that we are frail human vessels made from the earth going back to the earth. This is a wonderful illustration of the clay pots that were so prevalent in Corinth and other areas around the known world at that time. Very cheap clay pots that people would buy that would be comparable to uh, styrofoam cups today. You go buy a clay pot for hardly any money, take it home, and you'd put your valuables in these clay pots and leave them on the shelf or hide them or put them someplace. That would be your storage receptacle. They were really cheap. They could be replaced easily. But what you put into these clay pots was very valuable. Sometimes in a small clay pot, you could convert it to a candle, put in oil and a wick, and it would be a light to light up the house. But clay pots were cheap. They were easily broken and were easily replaced. But what was in them, what you stored in them, was very valuable. And knowing that God has chosen us and shown the light of Christ into our hearts, we may be tempted to become proud and conceited because we realize that God has chosen us, He's called us, and we can be tempted to think, look how He has favored us. Look how much we know and how blinded other people are. Our hearts are so quickly turned toward pride and superiority over other people. And perhaps Paul is coming in here to remind us that there's nothing for us to be proud about that we've been chosen. The glory goes to God. It's useless to be proud, and he shows us it's useless by how, how frail and earthen and weak and dying and mortal we are. We are vulnerable and limited. And the longer we live, we see that life is a process that wears us out. None of us gets out of this alive. And it wears us out and weakens us even further. William Barclay said, Life has surrounded us with infirmity, although Christ has surrounded us with glory, so that we may remember that the infirmity is ours and the glory is God's and recognize our own utter dependence on Him. This first passage I have there on your outline, 1 Corinthians 1, it should be 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and not verse 12. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We carry something glorious and valuable and precious in fragile, fragile, cheap, uh, dying containers. The power of the gospel is the beauty of salvation. It's the glory of belonging to Christ. And it's all about God's power. It's not our power. And we carry this treasure in bodies that are breaking down day by day. We know that. Our bodies day by day are breaking down, and we carry this great treasure of his salvation in our lives. And God put his salvation, his power, his treasure into broken people so that when people see anything good in us, they know it can't possibly be us. It must be the power of God at work in us. They see the light of Christ. When God did incredible, powerful things through people in the Bible, the wise ones in Scripture always gave credit to God and not to themselves. When Joseph was called before Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dream, Pharaoh challenged him to interpret the dream, and, and Joseph said, It is not in me. 
God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And Joshua and the Israelites, when they were marching around Jericho, carrying these pots and shouting for six days, on the seventh day they gathered again and walked around Jericho seven times with their pots. And uh, Joshua reminded them, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Then they blew their trumpets and the people shouted, and these huge, tall, fortified walls came tumbling down just because they shouted. That could not possibly show any power to the people who shouted and broke pots. The power for taking over that city went to God. And one of the greatest illustrations, I think, in the Old Testament of God's power is when he called Gideon to gather an army to fight against the Midianites. And 32,000 men responded to the call to go fight against the Midianites. But God told Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God did not want 32,000 people to win this battle because then people would be confused. They Look what a great army they had. So God led Gideon to winnow down those 32,000 men to 300 men. And the power of God, 300 men, overwhelmed 120,000 Midianites. The power goes to God. Sometimes the outsider... God's instrument might seem powerful, but God's instrument, those who love and serve the Lord, know it is not them. It is the power of God at work in them because the power and the glory belongs to the Lord. We pray this every Sunday here at Second when we repeat the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We are saying that the power is God's. It's not in us. The power is God's and all glory is goes to the Father, not to us. And isn't it also good to know that being mortal and weak people, that our weakness and our mortality is not a barrier to the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, Billy Graham has led crusades all over the world, and millions of people have come to faith through his preaching, through the power of the Spirit working through his preaching. One day, probably not very far from now, Billy Graham is going to die, and go to be with the Lord. But the power of the gospel is still going to be going forth in our world. As His Spirit moves through other speakers, other preachers, through people like you. God's power is not limited because we're frail and weak. It continues to go on. And our faces, our bodies may fade from this earth. But God's power is not stopped. He continues to go. He continues to move. He continues to change people's lives and provide miracle after miracle in people's life. God's power is revealed in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's placed it in our hearts, and it helps us overcome spiritual attacks and the trials of life as well. In verse 8, Paul begins describing his own trials and the deliverances that the Lord has given to him. And what he says about his suffering also applies to each of us as we follow and serve the Lord. And This brings us our next truth. God's power helps us overcome life's trials. God's power helps us overcome life's trials. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Paul is writing about the sufferings that he's had as he's been a witness for the gospel. He knew the reality of persecution as well as anybody else. And when we get later on in the weeks ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to read about Paul's uh, persecutions that he faced. In chapter 11, he writes about his imprisonments. 
how he was often near death. He received 39 lashes five times. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned once and left for dead. He was shipwrecked three times in danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst often without food in cold and exposure. And yet it was Paul's words, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He liked to boast about how weak he was so that people would see the power of God at work in the world through him. And here in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9, he describes his trials and his sufferings and how God has sustained him every time, every time. And what Paul wrote about his troubles is also true for all believers through time in every part of the world. For as we live for Christ, we too are going to be afflicted. Afflicted means to be hedged in, to be troubled, to be oppressed, to be hard-pressed. And how many of you are there right now? You're afflicted. You're hard-pressed. There are things pressing upon you that you don't see a resolution for. You feel pressure from every side and wonder, how am I going to get out of this? What's God going to do? How is this possibly going to turn out for the better? We're, we're afflicted. We're hedged in. We're troubled in every way, meaning that there are pressures and all kinds of forces on us from a multitude of directions that we face in our life. But we are not crushed. We're not destroyed. We're not broken beyond repair. The longer you live, the more you can look back in your life and see those times when you went through some very, very deep waters, some very dark times, and you didn't see how God was going to work out a salvation, a deliverance for you. But it happened. It happened. He helped you. He walked with you. He carried you through it. You may have sustained great loss, but you survived. And he carried you. And you were not crushed. He was faithful. And you can see it in your rearview mirror. It's just hard to see it when you're driving forward as you're going through it. From time to time, we may be confined in difficult circumstances and troubling environments. But there's always... There's always an escape route for our spirits to and through the unlimited spaciousness of God's grace. There's always a way he brings us through his grace and his mercy. Perplexed. The word perplexed means we're cornered. We're suffering embarrassment. We're depressed. We're anxious. We're not seeing a way out. Many of us are perplexed today. We feel cornered, not knowing a way out. But we're not driven to despair. We do not lose hope. We do not cave in. God sustains us and he helps us. We call out to him on a regular basis, maybe hourly if not more, but we're not driven to despair. And verse 9 says, We're persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Persecuted means we're opposed, we're challenged, we're hard driven by people that oppose us and attack us. But we are not forsaken. We're not forsaken. We are persecuted by people. People will persecute us because they do not like what they see in us. They oppose us. The world is aligned against the forces of God. But we are never abandoned by God. God never abandons us. Psalm 27 verse 10 tells us, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. The Lord will take me in. We're struck down. We're struck down to the ground. Sometimes it may be an illness. It may be the loss of a job. It may be something that just totally knocks us off our feet. Almost defeated. Waiting for the final blow to finish us off. But we're not destroyed. We're not destroyed. 
the assaults that can kill the body. And assaults can kill the body, but they cannot destroy the spirit, which is held secure in the arms of Christ. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. What holds you? What holds you in times of pressure and stress and catastrophe? The Lord holds you. God holds us in, our, in his hands. Whether we sense it or not, he holds us in his hands. John 10, verses 27 through 29, had this great promise from Christ. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He holds us. Things can strike us down. And death may seem close at our door, but nothing will ever take us out of God's hand when we belong to him. He holds us secure. It's so good to know that he's loyal and faithful and true to us, even when we are not loyal and faithful and true to him. He loves us and he cares for us, and he's seen this, what's coming up. He knows what's ahead of us, and he carries us in his hands, and he's going to preserve us through those trials. Not long ago, a dear man in our church, Mark Coleman, was going through terrific pain in his life. He had been in dialysis for a long time, and he was in the hospital in great pain, and his wife, Claire, was by his side. And they had given him as much painkiller as they were legally allowed to give to him, but he was still in great pain. He was calling out to Claire, Claire, do something. And Claire said, I don't know what I can do. They've given you all that they can give you. He said, Give me something. Help me, Claire. She went, but she went back out to the nurse's station and asked them again if they could give him something. Again, they said, no, we cannot do that. And her heart was breaking hearing her husband's voice, Claire, do something. She went back to his bedside, raised her hands, said, Lord, we don't know what to do. Please help us. And just as she finished that prayer, the Lord took him to be, to be with him in heaven. He breathed his last breath. That's that's the most fantastic deliverance God can give any one of us is to take us home out of this strife, out of this mess, out of this perplexity. And he answered her prayer in a miraculous way and she saw God's hand delivering them from this time of great pain. She still misses him and grieves him, but God's blessing and his spirit has been with her and encouraged her, and she has seen him be faithful to her in so many ways that there's no doubt that God has blessed her and taken care of her and delivered her husband. We may be at our wit's end, not able to understand why or what is happening to us and around us, but we are never at our faith's end because of the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. And the power that he has in us. And we can trust in the goodness and the grace and the love of Christ. Even when we feel overwhelmed. Even when we are baffled and cannot figure this out. We can trust in God's grace and glory and power to shine through. And this presents this theme that's so common throughout 2 Corinthians. And that is that the power of God is made perfect in weakness. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, and we'll study that later. It holds the entire book of 2 Corinthians together, that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Isn't that a great assurance? 
no matter what we go through, no matter what strikes us and pressures us and hems us in and knocks us down, that God is there. And we're never at, at an end because of our faith in Him. This brings us to our next truth, and that is that our sufferings are an opportunity for others to see the life of Christ. As we suffer, there's an opportunity made available for people to see the life of Christ. Let's look at verse 10 and 11. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. The phrase, the death of Jesus, refers to the sufferings and trials that Christ experienced on earth. And as a soldier of Christ, Paul was sharing in the same trials that Christ experienced. The death of Jesus is reflected in the emotional and physical pain that we read about in verses 8 through 9. Afflicted but not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair, persecuted, that is sharing in the death of Christ. The kind of persecution that he endured when he was walking this earth. In chapter 6, verses 3 through 10, Paul also listed some sufferings as well. Afflictions and hardships and calamities and beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. 2 Corinthians 4.11 indicates that Paul believed that his death was actually being hastened as he fulfilled his role as an apostle. As he served the Lord and took the gospel and established churches, that was hastening his death. Talk about this work is killing me. That's what Paul believed. This work was killing him. It was taking, taking him closer to be with the Lord, which was okay with him. There were times when he just as well would be with the Lord than to go through what uh, he was experiencing. And I think sometimes we felt that. Sometimes the crushes of this life, sometimes we just as well be with the Lord. But it's not time until he calls us. We keep going. What was true for Paul in his day is true for all believers who take up their cross and follow Christ. You know, great compensations and joys that come from walking with Christ. But following Christ comes at a cost. And you know that. Taking up your cross and following him. It's a cost that we pay. And when we answer the call to follow Christ, to serve Him, and to be a believer in a dark world, we go through a lot of abuse and ostracism and ridicule from a very hostile world. In Matthew 10, Jesus told His disciples, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And then this great statement, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do we love Christ more than our families? Do we love Christ more than our jobs? Do we love Christ more than our health and our bank accounts? Do we truly love the Lord more than anything else in, in the world, in us? I remember that roll call of faith in Hebrews 11. You may want to just keep your finger there in 2 Corinthians and turn back to Hebrews 11. There's this wonderful roll call of faith. It says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for 
and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then the writer of Hebrews mentions several people in this roll call of faith. People who lived and trusted God and believed in Him by faith. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. And by faith, Abraham, and etc. But then, buried in chapter 11, verse 35, is this verse. And it lists many, many believers whose names are not even recorded in Scripture. And it says this about them. Others who live by faith were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Not long after Paul wrote this letter, it wouldn't be too long, he too would find this kind of a persecution and death. And we know today around our world that Christians pay a high cost for their faith. We live in one of the few countries where there's not any aggressive, uh, murderous kind of opposition toward Christians. But who knows what that might be in the future. Right now, around our world, people are going through great tribulation because of their faith, because they belong to Jesus Christ. And they follow the example of our Savior, who also was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know, Jesus Christ has called us to share in his sufferings because when we participate in his sufferings because of our trust and faith in him, we also share in his life and in his glory. It's a spiritual truth that's very difficult to communicate and understand. But as we participate and share in the sufferings of Christ, we share in His life and in His glory. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 11 also illustrates this great theme of Christianity, that life comes from death. Dying to self leads us to life in Jesus Christ. And as we give ourselves over to death, dying to the things that we want, that we insist upon, dying to our way, as we suffer life's trials and persecutions. The life of Jesus Christ is revealed, it's manifested, it's broadcast through our lives. And those persecutions make cracks in those jars of clay. And as they make cracks, as they wear us out, the light of Jesus Christ begins to shine through and people begin to see some of the power and the glory of Christ in people like us who are wearing out, who are succumbing to the forces and the the trials of this life. And our death to the world and to selfish desires reveals the light and the life of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The death of Jesus Christ, the cost we pay as we follow Christ, transforms our weak and broken and dying bodies into powerful illustrations of the life of Jesus Christ. As we're decaying and falling off the scene and we feel weak and vulnerable, we give a powerful, powerful reflection of God's light and grace in the world. When people see us afflicted but not crushed, when people see us perplexed but not driven to despair, when people see us knocked down but not destroyed, the life of Christ is visible in their eyes. They see something beyond us that they know is not in us. And the power of the gospel is revealed 
to those folks. And then at the end of life, when all of this is over, and we've endured these hardships, we will eventually recognize and participate and experience God's resurrection power as he delivers us from death and brings us to life and glory with him. You know, Paul, when his name was Saul, stood there and held the cloaks of those men who stoned Stephen, one of the first deacons, after a very powerful message about Jesus Christ. People could not stand what Stephen was saying. They thought he was a heretic. They took him outside the city and rushed upon him and stoned him to death, and Saul held their cloaks while they killed him. That must have made a powerful impression on Paul, even though he was not a believer at that time. I believe that image of the way Stephen died and even prayed for these people before he died, that the Lord would forgive him. I think that left an immeasurable imprint in his mind. He remembered that. He saw that. And that became a lighthouse, a a reminder to him as he went through these sufferings himself that he would see the power of Christ in him as he saw it in Stephen, as Stephen died. The sufferings that we take part in open up opportunities for people to see the power of God. This brings us to our next truth, that faith in God's resurrection power enables us, faith in God's resurrection power enables us to endure suffering, be witnesses of the gospel, and bring glory to God. Verses 13 through 15. Since we have the same spirit of faith... According to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. You know, the afflictions and dangers and all that Paul went through could have discouraged him and driven him to despair. But he was not discouraged. Paul affirmed his confidence in God on every situation. And he states here, he gives us two reasons for his sacrificial lifestyle, why he was was not discouraged and why he kept going. And the first reason he kept going was that his recent near-death experiences strengthened his faith. Having been so near to death so many times, it strengthened his faith in knowing that the one who raised Jesus Christ would eventually resurrect him from death. He knew that death was not the end. And the second thing that kept him going was he had a passion. Paul had a passion for the glory of God. He poured himself out so that more and more people would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And because they came to know him, that would increase the thanksgiving and praise that went to God. Paul wanted more and more people to believe so they could enjoy living in Christ and they could add their voices to all those others who sang God's praises and lifted Him up and glorified Him. In verse 13, Paul is quoting from Psalm 116. And this psalm sounds like it's talking about David because it talks about someone who's been greatly afflicted and the sorrows of death have surrounded him, but he did not despair. Just verses 7 through 10 of Psalm 116 say this, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have been delivered, my soul, from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. You know, Paul's critics had criticized him for losing his heart, losing his zeal for ministry. And yet here, Paul's hardships and near-death experiences have strengthened his passion 
and pouring himself out. The hardships only increased his passion for giving his life away and proclaiming the covenant of grace. Just as God rescued David from death, Paul knew that God would resurrect him from death after he left this world. He knew that he was going to die eventually because he was mortal, but he knew that one day he would be resurrected. You know, people who have narrowly escaped death, maybe you're one of those, you've had a near-death experience, or you've met somebody who has, oftentimes they go through a very radical transformation. When they stare death in the face, they are different people after that. I think of Robert Taylor. We're going to be uh, having a memorial service for him tomorrow here at our church. He's been, he fought cancer for several months. And he was always a, a great witness for Christ before he knew he had cancer. But once he started fighting this battle with cancer, he became an incredibly bold, assertive witness for Jesus Christ. He would just openly bring it up and talk to his friends, his golfing buddies and others about the power of Jesus Christ and how they needed to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and to trust Him. His life really became even more intensely devoted to sharing the gospel as he faced death. And I think the impact of that is going to continue long after Robert's death. What a legacy to be one who does not allow the fear of death to keep you from carrying out your calling to follow him. Paul spoke about the coming of Christ, and he talked about the resurrection of believers. And he described this in much greater detail in 1 Thessalonians 4. If you want to keep your finger there in Corinthians and turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes in detail about this coming resurrection of the dead. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. When Christ returns, those who have gone to, gone to sleep already died and trusted Him as their Savior. They're going to be resurrected out of their graves first and given glorified bodies. And we too will follow them and go to be with the Lord in the air. And then all of us stand before him in this final judgment. But there is a resurrection coming after this death in which we go and stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives. There's coming this time when we too will have glorified bodies as Christ had after his resurrection. And this life is not the end of it. Paul did not lose hope because he knew that Christ would return and resurrect him and give him a glorified body and bring him with other believers in Corinth into the presence of Christ. A great day is coming. Beyond this dark world and the problems we face here, a great day is coming when Christ is going to call us out of the grave and resurrect us to be with Him and to be with Him through eternity. That future and culminating act of history was as real to Paul as anything else in his life. And Christ's return not only gave Paul hope in his trials, but it also empowered his zeal 
gave him great zealous passion for sharing the gospel. Paul's motives for his sacrificial ministry are similar to his motives for sharing the gospel. And those are two primary motives that Bible scholars have talked about. One was an eschatological uh, moment, the end of time. He knew God was going to resurrect believers before they uh, face the final judgment. Paul wants the message of God's grace to be proclaimed everywhere so that more and more people will be in that party that the Lord calls to live with him in heaven. So he had this end of time motive. But he also had this doxological motive. This doxo is that Greek word that means praise. He wanted more and more people to be present to praise God and to worship God and to celebrate Him. So that, those two motives, the resurrection of Christ and the opportunity to praise the Lord, were two powerful motives that encouraged Him, empowered Him to share the gospel and to live a sacrificial life. In Philippians 2, it reminds us of the praise that's one day coming to Jesus Christ that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Paul wanted as many voices as possible proclaiming the glory of God at the end of time. Paul was passionate about the glory of God. And then our next truth, as life's troubles wear down our physical body, God is renewing our inner selves and preparing us for eternal glory renewing our inner selves and preparing us for eternal glory. 16 through 18, or these, this is what we read. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Here Paul is repeating what he said in verse 1 at the beginning of this chapter. We do not lose heart. We do not become discouraged and give up amidst the conflict in which we find ourselves. Paul did not lose heart because of what he knew God was doing through him, preaching the gospel and proclaiming the covenant of grace. But here in verse 16, Paul did not lose heart because of what he knew God was doing in him. God was working in him, achieving eternal glory for himself. There's a great comparison here between the outer self and the inner self. It's not, this is more than just body versus spirit. This is a view of our total existence from two different viewpoints. Our inner self is described by Paul in his letters to the Corinthians, Ephesians, and Colossians, and also our uh, outer self. And these scriptures are printed in your outline. You can uh, read them again later. But Ephesians 3, 14 through 17 describes this inner being that we have through Jesus Christ. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The power of God's Spirit strengthens our inner beings with power. That inner being is strengthened with the power of God in our inner being, with great power. In Colossians 3, verses 9 through 10, he describes the new self. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This new self is being renewed after God's image through the power of his spirit. God is doing something powerful in that inner being in us. 
And 2 Corinthians 5.17, which you'll talk more about in the next couple of weeks, talks about the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. On the back of your outlines, you may just want to make a giant large box with your pen and draw a vertical line and make two columns on that. And at the top of the left column, write outer self. And on the right column above that, write inner self. And we'll contrast this outer self and the inner self. This outer self is our physical bodies, our earthly tent that belongs to this age, to this time that's limited by time. And it's wasting away, and it's aging, and it's dying, and it's mortal, and it's headed to death. None of us are going to get out of this alive. We're headed toward decay and destruction. But on the inner self refers to a spiritual person who is being renewed by God's Spirit, who is receiving spiritual strength for serving God and enduring suffering, and the spiritual self who belongs to the age to come. There is an inner self in the life of every believer that is being designed and created and set apart to live eternally. It's being renewed day by day, and we're awaiting Christ's resurrection to life eternal. And God is creating within our inner nature a new person out of the old. The person we are today that people see when they look at us, it's a limited lifespan, a life of selfishness and self-centeredness that keeps us from wanting to follow Christ, that leads us off in painful ways. This outer form is dying out. But God's Spirit is at work in our inner self, in this new person, recreating a new powerful person. We may not always realize it or sense it, but something powerful is going on in this inner person that God is working on. He's renewing us, and He's making something totally new that lives by faith and not by sight, that's being prepared for eternity. It's kind of like these uh, anthropods, like scorpions and blue crabs and centipedes and some... Uh, some uh, types of butterflies, they have this exoskeleton. And throughout their, their lifespan, this exoskeleton, which means all this hardness on the outside of their bodies, they have to shed that, they have to molt that off. And there are times when they drink extra water and they puff themselves up and this hard exoskeleton on the outside of their bodies kind of crystallizes. And they eventually break out of that old exoskeleton and something new and powerful and living and active comes out of that old crusty scales and goes on to live. It's like this old exoskeleton that we live in. It's dying, but God is doing something powerful on that inner person. It's more than just a spirit we're talking about. It's something powerful that God is doing and giving us strength and hope in our inner man that he's preparing day by day to serve him. And he gives us day by day the supplies of spiritual strength in verse 16. Day by day, what we need, God gives us just as we need it. Just as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. Day by day, he gives us what we need to serve him and to help us through this life. And he talks about this light momentary affliction. Paul's sufferings and the persecutions he went through were not minor things to him. They were major crises that challenged him, that attacked him, that drove him, uh, drove him to the very end of his own strength. He suffered greatly uh, as a result of encountering Christ on the road to Damascus. His sufferings were not minor. But when Paul considered what lay ahead of him, 
what lay ahead on the other side of life. He could see that eternal weight of glory that God was preparing for him. And so he could say that what he was experiencing in this life is light and it's momentary compared to what lies ahead. The Apostle Peter also talked about how the trials of this life are only for a little time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed for the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. Paul knew that the trials he faced were strengthening him for what lied ahead. And I think it's important for us to remember today as we bring this to a close <clears throat> that we live lives of public drama. We may think that we live our own isolated lives, that very few people notice what happens to us. But people watch your life all the time. You never know who is watching your life. When I first started attending this church, I was, I was getting older. I'd, I'd pass these major birthdays, and, and I began to wonder, well, what good am I now? I can't do these things. I can't do those things. And we all wonder about as life ages us and, we, and our options are limited. You know, what can motivate us and push us and help us to go forward? And I would come to the worship service here on Sunday morning and I would watch some of our older senior adult men who could sometimes barely walk, ushering in their wives into the pews. And this older man, Sam Sorrells, is one of these men. Sit down front with his wife, Beeb. Always had on a suit. Always looks, looks great. Today, their health is such that they can't always be here. But he was here every Sunday. And that encouraged me. That encouraged me. And I saw other senior men who, week after week, in spite of their afflictions, their inability to move very fast, walking with a walker, you name it, I watched them. They were still faithful. And that spoke a preaching, pre- preached a sermon to me just to see these men being faithful. You never know who is watching you as you live through your persecution, as you live through your affliction, as you live through your aging. You don't know the eyes that are upon you, watching you. And they're not only watching you, they're watching the power of Christ revealed in your life as you faithfully live for Him and trust Him. As that old outer self is wearing away, there's something powerfully being revealed through your life on the public stage in which each one of us lives, that points people to Jesus Christ. They're watching you. In verse 18, Paul was teaching us that God uses the trouble of this world to wear down the outer self and renew the inner self. So we stop focusing on things that we see and start looking to Him, to the things that are unseen. Then our last truth is our greatest hope is found in whom and what we cannot see. Our greatest hope is found in whom and what we cannot see. What wears us down in this life prepares us to finish our race and prepares us for our eternal home. 
we're called to focus upon the things we cannot see. Everything we see in this world, as we know, is fading away. And I've uh, visited many people in my ministry with uh, senior adults, and their life has been narrowed down. Used to have a big house, used to have a lot of kids, used to have two or three cars, and now they're in this small room in this assisted living facility, and everything they own could be put in one paper grocery bag. And God, year by year, is narrowing our lives down, stripping things away from us, taking things away from us that used to be extremely important, on which we put such great hope and trust and need. And now we're narrowed down year by year so that what used to be important to us doesn't matter a bit. What truly matters are the things we cannot see. Knowing Jesus Christ, living in His power, finding grace and mercy in this day to make it through this day, and having the hope He's put within our hearts, knowing that this is not the end. This is not all there is. One day there's coming a glorious and powerful resurrection in which Christ will call us up to be with Him. And the things we see in this world fade away from our eyes and are no longer any, of any importance to us because we have our eyes fixed on something else that will never change, that will be with us and love us forever, the Lord Jesus Christ and our powerful God and Savior. In every situation, as we grow closer to the time when the Lord calls us home, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Praise God for holding us in His hands. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're so grateful that You're doing a work in us that sometimes we don't even sense or know or realize. But you're working in us. You're giving us power. You're renewing our image into your image. And you're preparing us for the day when we'll get to spend eternity with you. We thank you for preparing our home for us in heaven. And we thank you for preparing us for that home. Today we pray that your power will sustain us and direct us as we walk through this world. And no matter what the persecutions and afflictions are that we may encounter, we know your power will sustain us. And we pray that your power will be seen in the cracks of our bodies as we live and give ourselves away to you. Thank you for loving us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.